Um, we're, we're in the final stages of our study in the Gospel of John. And uh, this morning, I'm just going to jump right in because there's a lot of territory that we want to cover in this. Uh, if you haven't been with us, boy, I'm sorry. We've got all these teachings online. You're welcome to go back and, and check it out. Uh, but if you have a way of following along this morning, if you'll find your way over to John chapter 20, please. Last week, as we began this chapter, these are the events that happened after Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion. Uh, it, Mary had gone to, to visit the, the tomb where they had buried Jesus. And when she got there, she found that the scene was different than it was when she had left it uh, a few days before. The stone which had covered the tomb had been rolled away, and she ran away from that scene to go and tell Peter and John. And they came and they investigated and didn't know what to do with it, so it says they went home. Literally, it says they went back to themselves, back to familiar things. But Mary returned to the tomb, and it was there that Jesus revealed himself to her alive and well. He had been raised from the dead. And we pointed out that John used a lot of symbolism uh, to get the point across that Jesus rising from the dead marked the beginning of a new creation, of a new uh, restoration that God is doing uh, in this world. That's what the whole gospel is about, that God is going to restore all things and bring us back to Edenic conditions. He's the Jesus rising from the dead is the forerunner of a new creation that's breaking right out of this old creation. We considered what that means for us today, how that should affect our expectations and how we live as people who live in a world where Jesus has been raised from the dead, what that should mean to us and what that can mean to us. Now today, as we continue the narrative, we're, we're going to go from morning to evening of the same day uh, that Jesus left the tomb, which you know, carries with it again that, that motif of the Genesis account of creation. The morning and the evening was the first day. We've even got that same kind of language employed uh, here in this from Genesis 1. So if you're there in John chapter 20, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We'll be starting with verse 19. It says, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them his wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. All right, well, seems almost like an understatement there at the end of it, but yes, that's, I would imagine that we would feel that way. There are all kinds of different things I think we would be feeling had we been there in that moment. Now, when we left off last week, Jesus had commissioned Mary, remember, to, to, to go and tell all the other disciples that he was alive. He gave her that, that job of announcing the good news. And it says that she did so. When we left off, it said that she had gone and done that. So it feels like when the story turns to the, to the guys, uh, that, that they would be in full celebration mode by now, right? Mary came and told them that news. But instead, the section opens up with them hiding in a locked room. So what does that tell us about how much they believed Mary's report when she came to them? It's kind of like, yeah, you saw Jesus from, okay, that's nice, Mary. Matthew, get away from the window. Do you want to die too or something like that? So they, they, they locked themselves in a room because they were afraid of the religious authorities that, that were out and what they had done to Jesus, they were afraid they were going to do to them. Somehow the empty tomb and Mary's account hadn't encouraged these guys. It appears to have actually frightened them. 
maybe they were thinking, you know, this empty tomb, it's got to be a setup. This has got to be a trap. They're trying to, they're up to something in this. So as the scene opens, here are our guys huddled in a locked room, fearful for their lives. And then suddenly Jesus is there with them. How did he get into the room? Like, how did this go down? I, you know, it says that they're, they're locked in there. Uh, you know, did he, did he just appear out of the shadows like Batman or a ninja would do? Or was it like a magician with a puff of smoke bump and he's there? Or I, you know, John doesn't seem to, to care how Jesus got there, only that he is there. Remember, John's gospel, it's loaded with symbolism in this. And that's not to try to imply that these things didn't happen. I believe that they did happen. But John uses these events that he's recounting as a means for telling us something, giving us the meaning behind the events and and telling the events in such a way that it provides for us the sense of meaning for this. So he's writing this gospel. Remember, he's writing this gospel for for fellow Christians who are being persecuted at this time, who themselves may be behind locked doors, hiding for fear of their lives. And I think the meaning is clear in this as he's, he's getting this across, that the resurrected Jesus is uniquely present with his followers, with his church, with us. The fact that he just shows up feels like he's been there all along, only now he allows them to see him. And he didn't do this in the larger world. You notice he's not out there on the streets showing up or, or doing that. He, he, he shows up with his church, even when they're scared, even when they're trying to hide, even when for the most part, these people had failed him. He's present. You think about the detail of the locked door and the symbolism that that can carry with it. Like, what are all the, the locked rooms in our lives like? What are those issues that prompt us to lock our true self away for fear of what others might think if they really saw it? And what does Jesus do with those doors? Locked doors don't seem to stop Jesus. That's not a thing for him. He pays no attention to do not disturb signs. He is not going to leave us alone in our fears. He goes where he wills and nothing stands in the way of him being with his followers, being with us. Because he called us before his friends. He showed up on this first Sunday and we puzzle over that. How did he get there? But he shows up every Sunday with his followers. And how does he do it now? I don't know. I don't really know. But the thing is, he keeps showing up and we recognize his presence in our midst. He keeps coming back to be with his gathered disciples, present in the worship, present in the word, present in our prayers for one another, in our interaction and care for one another. This is the point that John wants to make in this event. Christ is present with his church, and we don't ever want to forget that. I believe he's always here, and sometimes he makes his presence a little bit more known to us. And his presence in our midst is part of that shaping process where he draws out of us what's best in us. He draws out of us that new creation that he's made us to be. His presence in our midst is continually refining and shaping us into the image bearers of God that we were originally intended to be. The first thing he says when he appears to them, part of the shaping process, first things out of his mouth when he shows up, peace to you. Shalom is what he would have said. And I mean, that's a, that's a 
traditional greeting within Israel to this, this very day. But in this account, Jesus is going to repeat this greeting three times. We'll get to it. You'll see it. And that tells me this is more than Jesus just showing up saying, hey, y'all, or, or, or something like this. this is Jesus providing something for them. He's providing it for us. The presence of Jesus brings us peace. Shalom. Now, shalom peace is more than what the English word peace conveys. The, in English, peace simply means the absence of conflict or the freedom that we might experience from concern. But shalom, man, that carries way more weight. Shalom is speaking about wholeness and overall well-being and stability in life. So when Jesus gave his farewell address to his disciples uh, back in chapter 14, verse 27, he said, my peace, my shalom, I give to you. Remember when he said that? This is him making good on that promise. This is him showing up with shalom, with peace. When he comes saying peace to you, he's in effect saying wholeness has come to you. Stability has come to you. It it, it is well with your soul because I'm risen from the dead. And think about what was stressing these disciples out. Like they're in a locked room and what's going on there? Well, they're, they're fearful of what the future holds for them. They're probably feeling a certain level of shame over their past, over how those events went down when Jesus was arrested. They're confused about what's presently going on. And Jesus comes to release them from all of that when he shows up. He leads off with these words, shalom to you. Many of us, I mean, in, in the life that we have to live in this broken world, we find ourselves in the same situation. We struggle with regrets over our past or we stress about our present circumstances or we fret over some uncertain future, even in, either in our lives or in the world at large or our nation or whatever. But here in this gathering of his followers, while he's present with us in this unique way, listen to his words, shalom to you. Peace to you. Peace to you. In Christ's forgiveness, the past is forgotten. In his sovereignty, the future is in his loving hands. Our present circumstances, man, he's by our side to comfort and strengthen and empower us, to direct us through this life. Peace to you. How do we find peace? We remember He's present. Eugene Peterson, he's the guy that that did the paraphrase of the message. He once wrote how he loved the resurrection account, especially from Mark, when the risen Christ appears to the women and he tells them to go and tell the other disciples and Peter to go on ahead to Galilee and he would see them there. And Peterson said that whenever he faced a difficult situation or he didn't know what to do or he was stressed or feeling that stress over it, he would repeat that. In a prayer, Jesus, you're going ahead of me into that hospital room. I'll see you there. Think of that. That's a great practice to take up, one that I've employed in my own, in my own heart. I'm facing these things. Jesus, I'm going into this situation. I'll see you there. I'll look for where he is in those times. It brought Peterson peace. Man, I'm telling you, it's brought me great peace. And that's the thing to remember. He is risen and he's present in our lives, in, in our gathering of the church, and as, 
as long as we are living, he is by our side and we can face whatever we face in life. We can face any difficulty knowing his presence is here. So let's receive his peace, the shalom of Messiah Jesus. Receive that peace even as we're here today. Well, then Jesus showed him his hands and his side and John includes that. Nothing is wasted. No words are wasted in John's gospel. He's trying to reinforce the idea that Jesus was really there. This wasn't a ghost. This wasn't a, you know, a phantasm or some mass hallucination. He was there. They were able to touch it, touch the actual scars, scars left behind from the sacrificial act on his part. And so then the story goes on. Verse 21. Again, he said, peace to you. Shalom. As the father has sent me, So I'm sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Stop there for a minute. Again, he's repeating Shalom. And then he tells them that he's commissioning them to carry on this kingdom project that he's been about all this time that they've been following him, sending them just as the father had sent him out. Now, in Acts chapter 10, you know, when when we're trying to think about, okay, he's sending us out to do what Jesus did. Well, what did Jesus do? How do we summarize that? In Acts chapter 10, Peter actually summarizes what Jesus was all about. He says it in Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around, what? Doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And that's a great summary of the kingdom project right there. And that's what Jesus has given us to do. And we realize then that that the presence of Jesus in us and with us here is empowering us with purpose. I mean, people, you know, in, in my many conversations will struggle sometimes. And it's a normal, natural thing. This isn't, you know, a, a criticism. It's just the reality of what we go through as human beings. We struggle to find that sense of purpose. I've heard many times, you know, for someone who's come to me and said, I just don't, you know, I don't know what my purpose is as a Christian. I, I don't know what this is supposed to be. And I try to say as nicely as I can. Yes, you do. You're, you're sent into the world by God to do the good uh, of the kingdom, to bring healing words and healing prayers and to offer healing hope uh, of, of God's love to those who've been beat up by the devil in this broken world. That's the summation of it. You want to know what our purpose is? That's it. Go into this world and do the good of the kingdom. Bring God's hope to this world. That's our purpose. It's my purpose. It's the the purpose provided to us by Christ as his followers. And so there we go. Each of us knows his purpose, right? We can go do that, you know. But of course... It's one thing to just say that when we're all sitting here semi-comfortably and, you know, but man, living that, that's another deal altogether. It's like, it's like the keys of the car have been handed to a toddler and he's been told to drive across the country or something. It's, it feels overwhelming, insurmountable. I mean, how are we supposed to do what Jesus did? I don't know about you. I know me. I'm just like, whoa, I don't know. Well, that's where the other part of this commissioning comes in. And it's another action that mirrors the the creation account in, in Genesis. Genesis 2, 7, God breathed life into Adam. And then he became a living soul. Here, Jesus breathes on his followers and he gives them the Holy Spirit. 
It's a way of declaring they are now new human beings. Something new has happened here. Something new has invaded this earth. Now, whether this, you know, was a symbolic act forecasting what was going to happen later on in Acts chapter 2, or if this was in itself an initial filling of the Holy Spirit, man, oceans of ink have been spilled on trying to figure that one out. I really don't know. Uh, I'm going to leave that for the scholars to bicker over. They need stuff to do, so they can work on that. But for now, we're just going to take this at face value here and apply what it teaches to us. Just on the surface, as we're looking at Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't just hand us a little sponge and say, go out and empty the ocean. He didn't give us a task that's so far beyond our ability and then just leave it to us to figure out how to get this accomplished. No, he empowered us to do this by giving us the Holy Spirit. That aspect of God himself who operates on our human plane by inhabiting us and enabling us to do more than we could ever do on our own. That's what that means. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. He has come to take up residence in us. This is how Jesus is present with us at all times. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power to go about doing good. Now Jesus has anointed us with the Holy Spirit and with power to go about doing the same thing, doing good and and delivering those who've been oppressed, beat up by the sin of this broken system. If we believed on him, The Holy Spirit dwells in us. That's what the New Testament makes clear. And we don't want to lose sight of that fact. And it's an easy thing to lose sight of. Because like the disciples before, it's a temptation always just to sink back and go back to ourselves, right? To go back to what's familiar, to what I know I can do and what I can't do and whatever. But man, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. This is a key element to how Jesus is present with us and continuing his work in this world. So let's develop habits of recognizing the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Because, listen, and that takes practice. That takes practice and time and and the, the effort of the thought behind it. But, you know, there's been plenty of times in my life, to this day, I still have to sit back and ponder this. Well, was that was that the Holy Spirit prompting this? Was that me, you know, ciphering through that, thinking about that, praying about that, considering that? But, man, I just... There's all kinds of ways in which the Holy Spirit is going to prompt us. And, and it may seem mundane. It may not be a big, huge thing where, you know, you're going to get accolades and carried through the streets on somebody's shoulders. It's simple things that may go unnoticed. I just heard of an account. My brother was driving down the road, saw somebody stranded and, and felt the Holy Spirit prompt him. You need to pull over and help this person. So he went over, helped him, got a tire squared away for him. Didn't really think that much about it, but but just knew this was what the Lord was prompting him to do. Then I hear from somebody else who's friends with that person, the profound impact that it had on this person and the new God awareness that was there, how God was actually active and working. It doesn't it doesn't maybe look like much on the surface, but you add it all together. And here's the presence of the Holy Spirit moving through this world, making all things new. And you and I are part of that. (laughs) <laughs> this isn't an obligation. This isn't something, you know, you're straddled with this job now. Okay, get busy. No, this is like we stepped into this flow of something profound happening in this world and we get to participate in it. It's fantastic. This is our purpose as the people of God. 
And Jesus described what's at stake in that curious statement that he made. If we forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If we withhold forgiveness, forgiveness is withheld. That's an odd verse. Again, that's another one that's puzzled people for many years. The wording in the Greek is very difficult. The sentence is made up of 11 words uh, in the Greek. And, and translators then have to supply all the rest uh, to try to make it have some sort of sense in, in the English. Now, some have thought that this meant that there's to be some sort of hierarchy in the church, uh, some some priesthood who, who have the power to absolve sins, and a whole structure was built around that. But, man, it's so clearly stated in other parts uh, of the scriptures that God alone has the power to forgive sins. So the key to me, anyway, is keeping it in context. You know, we've been commissioned by Christ to carry out his work, and, and, and so in this sense, he's telling us the stakes of it. We, we stand as ambassadors of Christ, seeking to reconcile humanity back to God, calling for people to turn from this world's broken, corrupt system and become part of the family of God. And if a person hears that and surrenders the, their life to God through Christ, we have the authority then to declare that person is forgiven. You're forgiven with, with God. Not by us, but by God through Christ. We are just the messengers in this. Conversely, if a person rejects God's rule uh, over their life, we've got the same authority to warn that you're still facing the ramifications of humanity's rebellion against God. Those consequences are still uh, facing you. That's how I interpret it. That's how I, I, it's not that I came up with that. It's just the uh, interpretation that makes the most sense to me. It seems to jibe well with Second Corinthians 5. Uh, you'll have to pray about that, think about what that may mean. The point is, though, as I'm seeing it, the stakes are high for us to fulfill this purpose that we have of going about doing good, to, to, to live this new life empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're called to be out there doing good, representing the good hope that's found in the kingdom of God and to share with others this hope that we've been given by being reconciled with God. Jesus is present with us to accomplish that. That's what this section is communicating to us. Okay, we'll keep going here. Verse 24. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin. Uh, That's always curious. Again, words are not wasted in John. Why did he tell us this? I don't know. That'd be a great thing for you to go and study out. What's the deal with that? But either way, John, he's clearly a twin. But why would he be nicknamed? Is anybody a twin here? Anybody? I just am curious about that. Like if if you were a twin and somebody nicknamed you twin, wouldn't you feel a little kind of dehumanized in that? Like, how come they get a name, but I got to be twin or what? I don't know. I'm bogging down. I'm digressing. Let's get back to it. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and, 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 and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them. Doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Shalom, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound on my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe, my Lord and my God. 
Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, You believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. All right. So Tommy wasn't with them when, when the, that first Sunday rolled around. He was, you know, he was so depressed. He just went to the movies and then sat on the beach for a while by himself. He didn't want to be around people. But look what he missed out on. I mean, I don't want to make too much of this. Preachers have done this forever, so I don't want to belabor that. But it, it does reinforce the community aspect of this life of following Jesus. Gathering with our fellow believers is actually for our benefit. Jesus is uniquely present with the gathering of his followers, and we don't want to miss what he has to, you know, what he maybe wants to do for us or with us or through us. And again, this is not, you know, trying to ladle obligations on people or any sort of condemnation. Things come up, and I understand that, and it's a busy life, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just saying, I'm just saying what I'm saying. You know, it's not about keeping obligations, but this is good for us. It is good for us, and we want to keep it in mind. Anyway, though, I love this account of Thomas. You know, he always gets a bad rap. We call him Doubting Thomas, but, you know, that's just our nickname for him. The Bible, you know, never says that, never calls him that. Jesus never calls him that in this uh, this account. Thomas, honestly, think about it. Thomas didn't ask for anything that the other disciples didn't already get a week before. You know, they got to see his hands and his scars and stuff. And Thomas said, I want to see it too. You guys get that. You know, he just, you know, he was no less of a believer than they were before they got to see Jesus. And also, I'm not sure that he was doubting Jesus as much as he was doubting the testimony of these guys that he knew pretty well. <laughs> you know, he knew the pressures that they were all under. And I could easily see him thinking, yep, they snapped. That was it. You know, they got around together and worked themselves up into this. But once again, Jesus does this cool, you know, appearance out of nowhere Jedi thing. And, and his presence changes everything in the narrative. That's something John wants us to see, too. There's something about the presence of Jesus that begins to flip the script on all of these things. And notice that when Jesus shows up, the room didn't grow dark or he didn't, you know, glare at Tom and tower over him saying, how dare you doubt me? No, no. What's the first thing that he says again? Shalom, peace to you. Same greeting. In fact, when we look at how Jesus interacts with Thomas, we realize he's not trying to condemn our doubts. He's here. Jesus is present to encourage our faith. There's a world of difference in that. Just like he did with Tommy, he carefully leads us from disbelief into faith. And I think we've actually misunderstood the nature of faith altogether. A lot of it comes from a, a very modern perspective of how we we we, we treat this concept of, of faith, and especially within one one branch of the church. But we assume that you know having more faith means we have fewer questions. Uh, and man, if that's the case, I'm in big trouble. But but the Bible offers a different picture of faith, one in which faith and doubt are woven much more closely together than we might think. Faith, after all, it's not knowledge. And we kind of make that mistake. Peter Enns has a really good book called The Sin of Certainty. And and that's one of those things that happens with us, especially within the context of our modern Western culture, 
where, you know, empirical is everything, where physics, we believe, explains all. Forget the metaphysics. And, and so we assume that faith means we've got this sense of knowledge. But Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's not about having it all figured out or knowing things. Faith isn't the absence of doubt any more than courage is the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to move forward in spite of the fear. As much as faith is that willingness to trust in spite of the lingering questions or the lack of tangible evidence I may be able to produce. There's no indication in the text that Thomas actually took Jesus up on his offer. Doesn't say that. You notice it doesn't say that, you know, Thomas reached out, grabbed it, got a microscope, was starting to look it all over, comparing flesh samples, things like that. Nothing like that. No, it doesn't even say he even touched him. He just kind of collapses with a groan and makes the clearest statement of faith about Jesus in all of John's gospel. (laughs) He calls him Lord and God. And seen in that light, doubt can actually be a pathway to faith. When we doubt, we're probing, we're questioning, and we're searching. Maybe, you know, Tommy started with doubt, but he ended with the greatest testimony of all the disciples up to that point. <laughs> I mean, have you ever thought about it that way? That, that maybe this hard-edged realism isn't necessarily the enemy of faith? I think we've created a false dichotomy here. When we look at how Jesus interacted with Thomas, we realize that we can bring our questions, our skepticism, right alongside of our insights and our trust to our Christian journey. It all works together. It's all right to ask questions. It's all right to bring questions to church. In fact, that's the best place to bring them. Not because we've got some pat answers we're going to dole out uh, for all of that, but because the risen Jesus is present with the church, and by his presence, he carefully persuades us to believe, to trust. He lovingly moves us from disbelief to faith. That's what he's about. He's not here to condemn the fact that we don't understand things. He's not out trying to scold us for not having all the answers in every situation. He's lovingly coaxing us. Trust me. Trust me. And I love that about him. Jesus' words at the end of this scene aren't, I think, really about Thomas. You know, after all, when, when he says, blessed are those who have believed and have not seen, who's he talking about there? I mean, who could he possibly be talking about? I mean, it started with the members of the early Christian community that John is writing to, and it continues to include us right here this morning. Blessed are those who believe this. We haven't seen it, but we believe it. I think Jesus isn't so much rebuking Thomas as he's blessing us. You're blessed because you're here. We haven't seen, but we're blessed because we still believe and we still trust in this. And I think that's, I think that's wonderful. I think that's a great encouragement that the resurrection story provides us. Okay, we'll quickly finish this up. Verse 30. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you'll have life by the power of His name. 
So John finishes the chapter by telling us why he wrote this. Remember, we, if you were here when we started this book, we jumped ahead to this verse because he explained, you know, in this, what this was all about, that, that he's writing this stuff down so that we'll continue to believe. And he's speaking to Christians like us, Christians who weren't there, who didn't see all this, but who've embraced this and believed this anyway. He wants us all to believe, and he wants us to know that we don't have to have been there in person. We didn't have to walk the paths with Jesus. We didn't have to witness the miracles firsthand. We didn't have to be locked in that upper room. Through the reading of John's message and the power of the Holy Spirit working through this gospel, we can hear the stories and encounter the presence of Jesus and, and come to believe that he is the Holy One of God. And, and in believing, we can have a full and eternal life, a life connected with God. That's what eternal life is talking about. It's not just you're going to go sit on a cloud with a harp someday. It's a life connected to God that enters into God's realm, which has no end. So let's allow the, the risen Christ in our midst to bring us peace. Shalom to you from the Messiah. Let, let that motivate us to the purpose and the power for that purpose that he's given to us as his followers to go about doing good and and helping those oppressed by the evil at work in this world. And then let's move onward and onward from disbelief to trust more and more each time as we gather together. That is what it means that Jesus has risen from the dead That's what it means that he's here present with us now. Right on? All right, very cool. So as an expression of our trust and our belief in this, that we believe these things, we uh, practice what the church has practiced for 2,000 years, and that is the the, uh, ritual, we call it a sacrament, meaning a sacred ritual of communion. We celebrate the Lord's table, the bread and cup, however you want to word it, Eucharist, I suppose, But uh, this is where uh, we, as his followers, remind ourselves not only of who we are, but who we belong to. And that is we belong to God and his kingdom. We belong to one another as part of this vast family that he's created this way. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and the, the cup from what we believe to be the Passover ceremony. There's always questions about everything when it comes to the Bible, but we believe most closely it resembles the, the Passover ceremony. And yeah, is that for me? Thank you so much. And uh, uh, while they were celebrating this together, Jesus repurposed two elements of that Passover, the dessert bread, the Ephicomen bread, which was some, a piece of bread that was taken, broken in, in two pieces and hidden away. Uh, somewhere broken actually into th- three pieces or in the middle piece hidden away. And, uh, and then at the end of the ceremony, it gets redeemed for a piece of silver by one of the children who goes and finds it. And so they got to that point in the ceremony and Jesus took that and repurposed it. And he handed it to his disciples, you know, and he said, this, this is my body. And I believe and interpret that to mean this is representative of his body that was sacrificed for us on the cross. So Jesus uh, took this and he, he uh, said to them to take and eat it because this was his body given for us. In other words, that Jesus, by going to the cross, would take the full consequence of sin onto himself. And then at the end of the ceremony, he takes the, the, the cup of redemption, the last cup. The, and he said, take and drink this. This is a new covenant 
in my blood. In other words, there's a new binding relationship that we have with God that's not dependent on what family we were born into or what laws we're able to keep, but based solely on the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And so that's what we're, we're taking this morning. We're reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done to forgive us of our sins, to draw us back into relationship with him, and to bring us in to this wider family of God. We are not alone kicking through this broken world. Jesus is present with us, and we belong to one another. Right on? So uh, we've got a table in the front and a table in the back. At both tables, we have uh, breads. If you have any food allergies that you'll be able to avail yourself of, we're going to pray over these elements, and we're going to invite you to come and get uh, this while the band is playing the songs. When you get the elements, you can take them back to your seat and... um, Feel free to just pray over them and take them either uh, together with a group of people or uh, you can take that on your own. Either way, remember where we are. Remember the, the, the body of Christ. And let's be sure that we show love to one another and at least acknowledge one another in the process as we're doing this. But don't wait for a signal. We're not going to fire off a gun or something to tell you when to take this. Just you know, take this as you get it. But let's pray over this. Father, we thank you so much for what it is that you provided for us. And we ask you, Lord to work in our hearts and our lives. Help us to be cognizant of your presence here in our midst, your presence here in this bread and cup as we take this together, remembering this covenant that we have with you, that you so loved us, you gave your life for us. Help us, Father, to emulate that kind of love. As we take this bread and we drink this cup, I pray, Father, that your love will move through us and be demonstrated to one another. Let this place be a place of prayer. Let this house be a house of love. So we take these elements, Father. We count this bread as your body. We count this cup as your blood. These things have brought us together with you. We thank you for our salvation, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So feel free. Come on up to the table in the front or the table in the back. We'll meet back in a bit.
This is Anson. Which oh, there we are. And he doesn't like me leaving him, so. And I'm not complaining. All right. Uh, well, let's uh, speak this blessing on each other. If uh, anybody has anything they'd like to pray over, uh, see what God will do. Uh, feel free to come on up to the front. We'll we'll have some people. We'll gather around you. We'll pray and see that the kingdom of heaven draws close to each of us. But. Let's speak, oh, this prayer, it's the end of the month. Let's pray this prayer together, and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do your will here like it's done in heaven. Provide for our daily needs. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. We confess you're in charge. You're our provider. Our lives are in your hands. Yes and amen. Go in peace, you children of God.